What a beautiful day to walk into the farmer's market in town. Pastor John and his family headed down the road to walk into town. John and his wife of a dozen years, they kind of walked behind, and as all married couples tend to do, they talked about the sort of topics that married couples do. What color should we paint the kitchen? Those darn taxes we have to pay, and the bills. Frustrations at raising children, stories from the week. Daughter Aurelia and son Max bounced along ahead, tossing rocks and hitting them with sticks and otherwise getting in other people's way as they uh, walked into town. It was just a random holiday, certainly not the type of day that you would expect there to be trouble. Suddenly on the crossroads ahead, John and his wife saw a commotion going on. As they got closer, they realized there were soldiers there in the crossroads, stopping everyone. They were filled with a sense of foreboding, and there wasn't much they could do because the kids had already run ahead. They couldn't exactly grab the kids and hurry and turn the other way without being seen. They knew there was going to be some trouble, but they didn't know what. When they got up there, the soldiers were making each and every passerby stomp on a cross and throw incense in a fire to worship the emperor. You see, this was Rome during one of the the times of persecution against Christians. John and his wife and family were caught up in that. They had heard that there was new rounds of trouble coming around, that it was against the law again to be Christian. The head officer of the soldiers recognized Pastor John and his family, and he took a special interest. And he threatened Pastor John with the death of his family if he didn't deny Christ. I'm a dad. I can't even imagine that choice. But according to the story, Aurelia, his daughter, said, Don't worry, Daddy. We'll be back together soon. And the guards beat him down and made him watch as they killed each and every one of his family members in front of him until they finally killed him. Rome, India, Turkey, Africa, all over the Middle East, communist Russia, communist China. Throughout the world, there has been times of intense persecution against Christians. There's been times where the very act of saying Christ's name is an act of rebellion. Where to follow Jesus is to risk your job, to risk having your children taken from you, either by the government to be re-educated or even to have them killed. To be a Christian in these times and places may mean torture or prison or death. Sometimes horrible deaths. All for being a believer in this God, this one true God. For recognizing that Jesus provides a path of salvation. Now, most of us have been blessed not to have gone through that. Some of us may have experienced small amounts of it. But there have been time in this world where great persecution was just the name of the game for the day. And then you add on top of that things like poverty, 
sickness, disability, the loss of loved ones, death of a child, and ultimately our own death. We have to be honest that suffering is very real in this world. And I can tell you that when I was first a new believer, I really struggled with this. Because, well, if I belong to Jesus, why do I got to go through all this trouble? I mean, I'm doing the right thing. Shouldn't there be some sort of reward to that? Why do I have to put up with suffering? I just, I didn't understand it. And it was at a point in time in my life, a crisis of faith. It's interesting that last week, Pastor David, who was preaching on the first half of chapter 8 of Romans, ended about the time talking about calling God Abba, Daddy, not just father or king, judge, somebody in the distance, but daddy. Something so intensely personal that we could connect with a relationship with that, with God. Not just father, dad. Don't you think dad would treat his children better than this? Have you thought of that? Is that a question that you've asked yourself? I mean, I would hope my dad would be a little bit nicer than that. Well, let's look at that today as we get into Romans, the second half of chapter 8. We're going to start reading in Romans chapter 18. And as you've been following this series, we're talking about getting the gospel. Just really grasping, understanding what the gospel is and how intensely it affects our life. And this is a piece of it here. Understanding suffering. And in fact, one of the most important things that you can get in life, especially from your learning in church, is to have a theology of suffering. To have an understanding of how suffering interplays with your life as a Christian believer. Because let's face it, we live in a fairly blessed country. We don't face going down the street and running into soldiers that might uh, hurt us for being children, or for being children of God. We don't deal with that here, really. We, we don't deal with a lot of the uh, problems that you deal with in other countries where soldiers control everything, where the government gives you a choice, no choice, but tells you where to live and what to do. We have a fairly free country. And in fact, the coolest thing about it is we get to protest about things. We have a voice in our government. We have rights and freedoms. So sometimes we forget about the suffering that some of our brothers and sisters go through around the world and at various times in history. And may I add, various times in the future, because it will come back around again. No doubt about it. Suffering is very real, and the very brokenness of humanity tells us that government won't always be nice to the people. People will try to take control and prevent you from believing in Jesus. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. He says, Paul starts out saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I'm going to read that again. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it 
in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait, eagerly await for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we, if we hope for what we do not know yet, we wait patiently. So I'm going to stop there. Kind of dissect a little bit about what we're looking at here. You see the words he's talking about here. He just got done talking about Abba, our Father, God. And now he's talking about present sufferings. He's using the word suffering, frustration, groaning. He says that the creation is groaning. And then he even says that we as believers are groaning. Verses 22 and 23. Groaning. That's a good word. Uh, that was my morning this morning, by the way. Been running around a little crazy this morning. I was groaning and grumbling and, well, to be perfectly honest, most of it was my own fault. I was groaning. That was just a little bit of groaning. I've had times. I've had times when one of my children is in the hospital. I'm groaning. When I'm sitting with someone who's dying. When I got the news that a best friend had died. You can be guaranteed that I was groaning. Oh God. It says here in verse 23. That we. Who have the first fruits of the spirit. Groan inwardly. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What are the first fruits? Any response to that? When we talk about first fruits, what do we talk about in the Bible? Tithing? Giving? We give the first fruits to God of what our harvest is as an act of faith. So he talks here about we, the people of the Spirit, God's children have the first fruits. There's a little bit of a hint of that hope that we're going to be talking about. First fruits, there's more to come. I mean, we're groaning right now. We're dealing with suffering right now, but there's more to come. There's hope. Verse 24, he talks about the hope in which we were saved. Hope that is seen is no hope at all. What kind of hope is that? We hope for what we do not yet have. There is this tension in the Bible for believers of, of already not yet. Where we're already children of God, but there's something more. It's not yet all the way here to come. In fact, he talks about adoption here. And back in verse 5, he already said we were adopted children of God. Or not verse 5, chapter 5. So there's this sense of already not yet, that we are children of God, we are saved, but there's something more coming. There's the not yet when Jesus comes and makes it all final. There's hope in that, that whatever we're dealing with right now isn't necessarily how it's always going to be. And maybe, just maybe there's a purpose to it. 
I'm going to tell you it's more than maybe. It is, yes, there is a purpose in it. And we have to have confidence that it's something that's going to happen. In fact, in Hebrews 11, he talks about faith being confidence in things that we can't see. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. Can I tell you, as a pastor, people sometimes ask questions like that. What's it going to be like in heaven? I don't know. Is it okay if I, if I tell you I don't know something? I hope so. I'm not going to pretend I know things I don't. I haven't been to heaven. There's, there's a couple glimpses that we get in the Bible. It seems like it's going to be pretty awesome. But I don't know exactly what it's going to be like. I have to have hope and faith that what God promises is going to come true. So how do we handle suffering? Because we're not there yet. How do we deal with the hurt and pains and awful things of life, of living in a broken creation, if we're not there yet? Well, let's continue in verse 26. He says, In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. If you've been around me long enough, you've probably heard me mention it sometime that the best prayers that you'll ever utter are just groans. In fact, I think sometimes we get to be a little too fancy with prayer. You know, I'll talk to people when we do Bible study groups and things, and I'll have people say, oh, I can't pray in front of anybody. I don't know how to pray fancy. Well, that's okay. I don't know how to pray fancy either. In fact, sometimes you get people who pray so fancy, you're like, what is he droning on about? Sometimes your prayer is one word, a wordless scream to God. Sometimes you don't even have the word. What we're told here is that the Holy Spirit translates our groans to God. We don't have to have the answers. I'll tell you honestly, as a pastor, I don't know what to pray for sometimes. I don't have the answers. When I sit with someone who is going through a terrible disease, and I know they're probably not going to make it, I don't know what to pray for. When, when I'm with a family whose child is going into surgery, or even worse, I, I have a friend who, uh, his little son, they told him that he would die of cancer before he was five. They raised this little boy as faithful believers. And their son died probably about three months ago. What do I pray about for him? Do you know? If, if somebody out there has the answer to that, let me know, because I don't as a pastor. But I know, I know I can sit with him and I can pray with him because whatever I say, God knows what needs to happen anyway. Whatever my groaning is, whatever my frustration and complaints are, whatever my unsureness as a simple broken human being is translated by the Holy Spirit. God gets it. God understands. And hey, He's got a plan. I can have confidence in that because of what Paul is telling us here. It says in beginning in verse 28, and we know, we know that all thing, in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. 
For those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's this progression there. We know that in all things, God works for the good of believers. Now, that's a verse that a lot of people memorize because it sounds really good. And sometimes as believers, we misapply that. Sometimes we give poor advice because we misapply that. Oh, I lost my job. I got fired. That's okay. God's got a better job waiting for you. What if he doesn't? My child got cancer. Well, that's okay. God will heal him. What if he doesn't? We misapply this verse sometimes and sometimes criminally. Sometimes we just say it like that because it sounds good and we don't know what to say in a time of crisis. But there's a whole corner of Christianity called the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. People who tell you that if you've got enough faith, if you believe enough and do the right things, God will reward you with great blessings of money and wonderful blessings of good health. This is very popular in South America and Africa right now. It's huge and growing. People are teaching this. Why? Because when you're in great times of trouble, you want something to grasp onto. And so they bring this false gospel that says, hey, donate money to this preacher to show your faith, and then God will heal you, or God will give you great wealth and blessings. If you ever hear that from the pulpit up here, you have my permission to drag whoever said it out the building and throw them outside because they're not preaching the gospel. We know in our hearts that suffering is real, especially the older you get. I mean, when I was a teenager, I believed, hey, things are pretty much okay. And the older I got, the more I was around, I realized it's not always okay. Sometimes life downright sucks. I was okay saying sucks because last week you did, Pastor David. So... <laughs> No, there is beauty here if we take that scripture for what it really means. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. You see, talked a little bit earlier about those labor pains, that the whole creation is groaning as in labor pains, as in a woman getting ready to have a baby. Now, I've never been a woman. I've certainly never been pregnant about to have a baby. But I've seen it. It does not look comfortable in the least. It does not look like the most joyous thing to go through at any given time. I watched my wife go through it. I've seen other ladies dealing with it. God bless you. But the thing about having a baby in most cases, I have observed, is that all of that pain goes away. And then you've got this beautiful gift of joy in most cases. I mean, what a wonderful gift, right? There's a movie that kind of cracks me up. The Steve Martin's Father of the Bride 2, very funny movie. And in it, as an older man whose young daughter is getting married, he discovers now his older wife is pregnant. So both 
daughter and wife are going to have a baby about the same time. And they're driving down the street in the car when he's just found out. And he's looking on this side of the street as he drives. And he sees this mom go to give an ice cream cone to her kid. And the kid slaps it away and starts screaming. And she's looking out of the car on this side. And she sees a little mom giving her little boy a hug. And then he's looking out this side of the car over here again. And he sees a little kid laying on the ground, kicking and throwing his feet and having a temper tantrum. And then she's over looking on this side of the street. And mom and dad are pushing the little baby stroller and everybody's happy. Somehow God gives women the blessing that they forget all of that pain and move on to the joy. Um, Holy moly. God is working things out for good for all of those who believe in him. You see, all of these labor pains and groaning of creation, but one day I'll be taken care of. In this life or the next, maybe we are blessed enough to see the return of Christ in our lifetimes. If so, it'll all be taken care of. If not, it'll still all be taken care of. You see, sometimes when you're praying and you're praying for yourself or someone else who is sick, the answer may not come on this side of life. It may come on the other side of death. But yet, God will ultimately heal a new body, a new creation. All of these things that we worried about and suffered and pain will be gone. God will wipe every tear from our eye one day. I love what comes next. Paul says, what then shall we say in response to these things? That's a good preacher line there. That's wrapping up the sermon and saying, okay, we learned something. What are we going to do with it? He's going to give us his main point here. He says, if God is with us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? You see, God has got it taken care of. If God's with us, who can be against us? The assumed answer there is nobody. Who will bring any charges against those whom God has chosen? Those legal things we've talked about, how God justifies us. A legal term. He makes us innocent by just declaring it, by looking at us through Christ. Who will then bring charges against us if God has chosen us? It's God who justifies us. Who then is the one who condemns us? No one. Nobody. That's the answer to these questions. The answer is assumed there. Paul's assuming you got the lesson by now. Who's going to bring charges against us? Nobody. Who's going to stand against us if God's for us? Nobody. Who's going to condemn us? No one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, he was raised to life. He's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Well, come on, give me a resounding no. As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to the slaughter. But that's okay. 
No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Say amen. I love how Paul builds this section. And he's, you can just almost feel him getting more and more excited. He's like, we're coming to the point, guys. We're almost there. Stick with me. And he just keeps building louder and louder and more powerful, more powerful, making this point bigger. This says, nothing can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's just take a moment. We're likely to focus on the glory part and forget that suffering piece until we're facing with it. But suffering does happen. So are we supposed to be a sad, pitiful people filled with our suffering? No. No, we're not. Because he says we are more than conquerors. Now, conquerors here, that word that he uses here, I like in Greek. It's hypernikeo. The root word there is Nike, like the shoes. No, we're not going to get into the whole political thing right now about Nike shoes. But Nike, Nike shoes are named for victory. They're named for the god, the goddess Nike, the goddess of victory, the goddess that you go to when you're going to go to war and you make an offering and you go for victory. Now, we don't do that. We've got one god. But the Roman people would grasp that. We're not just victors. We're super victors. Hyper Nike. Nike. We're not just winning this. We've blown it away. Hyper Nikeo. We are more than victors. We are conquerors. Nothing separates us from God's love. And as God, the Father, Dad, He showers blessings on us. And nothing Nothing can separate us. Now, I would tell you, if you're not aware, within Christian theology, there's discussion uh, between two main points of view, although there's some others in there too, but between those who are called Reformed and those who are called um, Arminian. Now, we don't have to get real deep in that. Basically, the argument between the two is, well, God does some choosing and some predestination and picks people and somehow we're also involved in this to some level or another. And the discussion is where that is and, and how much. That's very super simplified. If you want a much longer discussion about it later, um, talk to David. <laughs> now, you can come to any of us as pastors and we can talk about it here. But I will tell you that I began as an Arminian and I still have some questions towards that. But one of the verses that's really pushed me in this is this, neither death nor life, not angels nor demons, not the present or the future, not any powers, human, government, supernatural powers, nobody's power, not height, not depth, that's supernatural and natural of the world, nor anything else in creation can separate me from the love of Christ. So let me ask you, what about politics and laws? Can they separate us from the love of Christ? No. We get real fussed about these things as Christians in America sometimes. But the truth of the matter is, even if our government went completely the opposite direction, would we still be Christian? Yeah. 
Yes. Can the government take you away from Christ? Can your parents or an unbelieving family take you away from Christ? Can the devil himself take you away from Christ? Can suffering take you away from Christ? Can you take yourself away from the love of Christ? That's part of the discussion between the Armenian and Reformed. I will tell you, I don't think we can. I mean, this whole thing here is this whole list of things that can't take us away from Christ. And if you'd like to discuss this, I would love to discuss this with you. But I'm going to tell you right here and now, it says, nor anything else in creation. In some translations, it says, nor any created being. So let me ask you again. Are you a created being? Can you take yourself away from Christ's love? I love my children. I'm their dad. I am at times incredibly and desperately frustrated with them. I don't think you're quite getting the depth of that. They drive me absolutely insane sometimes. They do things I don't understand. They get in trouble. Do they ever separate themselves from my love? No. I love my children desperately. There is nothing they could do that would separate that love. Now, I might be very upset with them. They might get themselves into the worst world of trouble ever in the world. But I would never disown my children because I love them that much. Now, God is our Father. One of His absolute perfect attributes is His love. I'm hammering this point home for a reason. Do you think that we can separate ourselves from His love? No. That's a good thing to know because we can hold on to that. That's part of what gives us hope in suffering. If there is nothing I can do to save myself other than to believe, then there is nothing I can do to take myself away. My God, my Father, is there. And He loves me. And He's giving me hope in suffering. And there's not one more thing I can do to make Him happier with me. And there's not one more thing I can do to make Him go, Oh, I'm done with that Roger. Get him out of here. By the way, I hold a lot of hope in that now. I know you're like, oh, he's a pastor. He must never do anything wrong. Okay, I do. You see, we come down to that end, those same questions I asked in the beginning. Doing the right thing, shouldn't I expect a reward from my dad? Don't you think God would treat his people differently if they believe? Shouldn't he make our life suffering free? Well, no, of course not. Because coming back to our children, my kids will never grow unless I push them a little bit. Unless I allow them to deal with situations themselves. Unless they have opportunities to fail. You can't learn to ride a bike without tipping over and crashing. Somebody just did. 
That suffering in our life is part of what helps grow us as believers. When God works everything out for good, that means he works also that suffering out for the good for us. There's something nice about that. Because if somebody persecutes you for being a Christian, what they mean for evil, God can use for good. Some of the strongest faith I've seen in believers are those who've gone through the most suffering in life. Because they figured out how this all works long before I did. Pastor John and his family knew suffering beyond belief. And yet, now they're experiencing glory beyond anything we can imagine. This is a truth that has happened for all the martyrs in the past and all the ones in the future, but it also applies to us whether or not we're ever persecuted. In our suffering, we know victory that nobody else can understand. One more point here is that as a pastor, when I do funerals, I'll do a funeral for anybody. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't even have to be a Christian. I will do a funeral for anyone. And, and that's kind of a, Pastor David, Pastor Bernie and I, that's kind of part of our community outreach is if you're in this community and around here and someone dies, we'll do a funeral for them. Partly because that's a great time of outreach, but partly it's because some of our calling is to be a comfort to those in this world. Gives us a chance to share the gospel too. But I will tell you, having done funerals for Christians and done a lot of funerals for non-believers, there is a difference. Oh, they're still weeping. There's still tears. We're still going to miss that person now. But you don't see the insane kinds of things in a Christian funeral that you sometimes see in a, in a funeral in the world. Because there's a hope. I can't even imagine living life going through suffering and problems and struggles and strifes and not killing myself. I, I mean, what will you do if you have no hope? If you don't know who Christ is, there is no hope. So what does the world do? Well, they turn to other things. They turn to alcohol or drugs or something to numb the pain. They, they turn to entertainment. Questions like abortion or euthanasia are just political questions because they don't know the hope of Christ. When you read about what's going on in some of the Nordic countries in Europe and how euthanasia, just letting some, uh, putting somebody to death because they're suffering, you know, you've got cancer that hurts, well, the doctor will give you a shot and make you die right now instead of having to fight your way through it. Why? Because there's no hope. Why would you go through suffering? Why bother? I wouldn't want to do that. Anything to get away from suffering. James 1, 2 tells us as believers, count it joy, brothers and sisters, when you face trials of all kinds. As we struggle, that's part of our message to the world. This is the practical outbringing that we can take. My goal as a believer is to die well. Not just die well, I want to live well too, but I want to die well. I hope I have the strength to do that when the time comes. Whether it's standing up to the guy holding a gun to my head saying, deny Christ or I'll kill you, or whether it's suffering through cancer or something like that at the end of life. Whatever it is, part of us taking the gospel out to the world is being able to share that hope through suffering with the world. That's why our Father lets us go through that. It grows us and it lets us take this message out to others because there's something just a little bit different in us.
So, when we're faced with those questions, when we're thinking, why would God do this? What could possibly gain, be gained from all this suffering? We can now go back to Romans 8.28. Memorize that scripture, because if we apply it correctly, it's one of the most beautiful in the Bible. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We know that in all things, God works for the good of us, even through suffering.